0: Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on the Reformed Faith. Welcome to the second week of Lightning in the Fog, the heartbeat and hurdles of the Reformed Faith. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, last week was just fog. I'm working on it. But let me start with a verse in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These things, have happened, to th- ha- these things happened to them, the people in the Old Testament, as an example, and they are written down for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. You've probably heard the famous quote that those who ignore history are condemned to repeat it. But last week we talked about terminology. What does reformed mean, and, and uh, how many people were not here last week? Okay, well, I handed out Play-Doh, and everybody made a little cup or bowl or something, and that was forming a cup. Then everybody mashed or bent or folded or spindled or mutilated their cup, but you could still tell it had been something. So it was deformed, and then they were to reform it again and make it their cup again, and that's what... The Reformation is referring to. It's the reforming of Christianity after it had been battered and smushed for a thousand years. So, so tonight we're going to talk about <clears throat> the origins, that what are the headwaters and the history of the Reformed faith? Where does it come from? How did it how did we end up with what we ended up with? And so we want to. Well, I'll, I'll take a look at the rest of the things. Next, the following week, we're going to do an overview of the of the theology and the constitution, and uh, and some of the distinctives of the Reformed faith, and then we're going to look at uh, the topic of jeopardy, the uh, the game that many of you are familiar with on TV, where they give you the answer and you have to guess the question, and the Reformed faith and the Westminster Cate- uh, Confession and all of that. It's like it's the answer. But a lot of times you're wondering, well, I wonder what the question was. And uh, because you're thinking, well, if I were to write out, if I didn't know anything about that, and I were just to start and write out what I think is the basics of the faith, I probably wouldn't have written what they wrote, Uh, at least not a lot of it. So try to understand uh, what were the different things surrounding the the church at the time of the writing of, of our statement of faith that resulted in them expressing themselves and emphasizing the things that they emphasized. Then after Easter, we're going to look at some of the hurdles. These are the the gristly parts. When we eat chicken with my mother, I'll probably get in trouble this is because this is being recorded, but anyway. She, one of her many, many virtues is that she is not a chicken waster, but according to her, the rest of us are. And if the bone is not completely clean of all meat and all gristle, then you are a chicken waster. Well, there are some parts of our theology that are more the gristly parts rather than the nice, meaty parts. And uh, the parts that when a person hears it, it's like, we believe that? Uh, well, why do we believe that? And I don't know that I like that. And, and so maybe you just keep quiet, but it's the part that whenever, if it, if it ever comes up, you sort of wince and stuff like that. So, or it may be just something that you puzzle about. And uh, so I picked four. And, uh, well, the hurdle number one is uh, predestination and free will. Hurdle number two is ice and fire because uh, our part of Christianity can degenerate into uh, kind of cold, the the frozen chosen. Have you ever heard that, you know? Um, We're usually not the ones dancing in the aisles. And uh, so to talk about ice and fire in the faith. Hurdle number three, infant baptism and the covenant. And hurdle number four, fatalism and prayer. If you believe uh, that God is uh, foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, why pray? So those are the four hurdles we're going to look at. Now last week, uh, somebody asked the question, what is theology? And theology comes from uh, two words in Greek, one meaning God and the other meaning word. So it's the word about God or the study of God. It's used more broadly to mean the study of us, os- spiritual things, of religion, but it technically is referring specifically to the study of who God is. Well, tonight we want to get into the headwaters and the history, Now, some of you like history, and probably a lot of you don't. I find it very helpful just because I'm a lot of times kind of curious, where does something come from? I mean, how did, we, how did we get here? And sometimes if you look at history, you can kind of see, oh, okay. You know, that happens in your family history. You know, you go back a couple of generations, and if you look at the home that your, your mom and your dad grew up in, it may give you some understanding of why they were the way they were, particularly in some of the things maybe you didn't like, didn't agree with. But maybe as difficult as they were, they were better than their parents were in that area. So, I mean, by looking at history, it can help. <clears throat> so we're going to, we want to look at uh, 1,500 years in 15 minutes, so uh, I wish we had seat belts on those chairs, but anyway, but let's look at the first 1500, years of Christianity, because in the year 1500, in a bit, uh, the Reformation started. So I wanted to try and help you understand what were the major things that went on in Christianity that got us to that point. Uh, Jesus, of course, was born, and uh, well, now they know, four BC. Four years before Christ, Jesus was born, that they made a little error in the, the way they originally set up the calendar, so they But, and Jesus died in around 30, and then these first 300 years were marked by persecutions. There were 10 major persecutions, each lasting a number of years. So just about anybody that lived in those first 300 years of Christianity, either as a child or in middle age or as an older adult, uh, experienced some type of persecution. Uh, sometimes it would just be that they would close down the churches and burn everything. Sometimes they would put you in prison. Sometimes they would, they would kill you. They were killed sometimes at amphitheaters and as, as sport. But a very important thing happened just after the year 300. Does anybody remember what that was? The Pope became a Christian. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah. change your word. The, well, Caesar. It, the Caesar. I know that's what you meant. <laughs> it's always exciting when the Pope becomes a Christian. <laughs> um, but, um, Constantine. It was, and the Emperor Constantine was going along toward, to, to fight this big battle, and according to his story, and he's sticking by it, was he looked up in the sky and saw a cross, and it said in Latin, under this sign you will conquer. And uh, so anyway, Uh, The Edict of Milan in 313 was issued, and they declared the Roman Empire that had tried to kill and wipe out Christians for 300 years. The Roman Empire basically converted and says, okay, we give up. We'll all be Christians. Was that good news? It was kind of a mixed bag. Why? Wouldn't that be great? No more persecutions. It got real political. Do you realize that just within, four, within 100 years, the monastic m- movement was starting, monks, nuns, people going off into the desert. You know why they were going off in the desert? I just read this this past week. Because the church, within 100 years, had already gotten so bad uh, it, and so political that in order to become a bishop or to get a, a choice place in the church hierarchy, they might pay somebody to, to bump off their rival because there was, a, there was a more and more money involved. And you think, oh, that doesn't sound good. I mean, you think of pastors you may have had or even heard of that you did not think much of, and they weren't that bad. I mean, as far as you know, I mean, we're not talking, you know, the Sicilian Mafia yet. Now, what happened about 100 years later after the Roman Empire declared itself to be Christian in 400 and something? Rome fell to the, the what they called the barbarians. I'm sure the barbarians didn't feel like they were barbarian, you know, but the, the word barbarian comes from bar-bar, and it's what the Romans thought that when the barbarians talked, they, you know, they didn't understand them, so they said just bar-bar-bar, yeah. so they're barbarians. Uh, they're people that talk strange language, so now we have the term meaning uneducated savages, but uh, but rome was sacked and pillaged and didn't mean that all christianity fell i mean there's still northern a- there were places where christianity was still going on in constantinople but but it was a uh, all of, all of these period this from 400 to 800 was a time of great uh, turmoil and upheaval because all of these barbarian tribes were coming in and taking over europe and what was formerly under the roman empire so This uh, orange part in here from 400 to 800 uh, was pretty disorganized and disjointed, and they'd they'd sort of lost their, the church had lost their bearings. Okay, and in this period of time was the rise of Islam, a little after 600. By that time, the church all over the the world, uh, all over the known world, all around the Mediterranean, again, had reached a point of Dead Orthodoxy, they, a couple of the mistakes they realized now they made was they didn't translate the Bible into everybody's language. It was all in Latin. And so there in the north of of Africa, they would do everything in Latin. So, of course, anybody that was really educated knew what they were saying, but nobody else knew a thing that was going on. And it was real stiff and formal and everything. And so it, that's one of the reasons that made it so easy for Islam to come in and conquer all of Northern Africa to this day. And that's a long time ago. That's about, uh, what, about 12, 1,300 years ago that uh, Northern Africa, which was mostly Christian, was overcome by Islam. Now in 800 is the next event we want to look at. Who knows what happened in, the, in 800 A.D.? happened in Rome, and it's a name you've heard of, Charlemagne. Charlemagne is Latin for Charles the Great. And he was a German king, and he was down visiting in Rome, and the Pope wanted help to defeat some of his enemies who were trying to take over his part of Italy. And so during Mass, he went over and put a crown on Charlemagne's head and declared him the new Caesar of the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire. So all of this period of time in here, this gray stuff in here from 800 to 1500, actually it continued. The Holy Roman Empire was not dissolved until Napoleon. But what that meant was with the Holy Roman Empire, you really had the merging of the two, of the church and the government. Now before, when the Roman Empire declared itself to be Christian, the government was still in charge. And when they had the Council of Nicaea, remember the Nicene Creed when we, that we do once a month, or when we have the Lord's Supper that's longer, you know, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, that's the Nicene Creed. And that was done at the Council of Nicaea in 325, and it was the Emperor Constantine that called that meeting, and he presided over it. I mean, that'd be like George Bush calling a meeting for, with all the churches to say, "Look, guys, we got to get along. So y'all hash it out. And after I hear everybody, I'm going to make a final decision on it. We're going with that. And if you don't like it, you're going to jail." That's kind of the deal here. Back when the the, the Roman Empire converted, I mean, they were still they had the, they were the ones still holding the spears and the arrows and everything. But here, in 800 and on, the church more and more was beginning to have the political, hold the political power, and they had sway over the kings themselves. How could they have sway over the kings? Well, they could say, this king, we're going to excommunicate him, so none of the priests in his country are allowed, under pain of also being excommunicated, to give him the Lord's Supper. And according to their doctrine, if you didn't get the Lord's Supper, you were going to hell. And they also wouldn't let him have extreme unction, which is the, the right they give right before somebody dies, and without that, also, you were maybe not going to heaven. And so they could they could really scare guys. So during the this uh from 800 to 1500 the church was extremely powerful with all the problems that come with that. When a person would become a bishop that meant that they were over this huge area. It would be like being the governor of a state. You got all the all the income from there. So <clears throat> Regular noblemen would, would say, Well, I would really like to be bishop there because their farmlands are really profitable. The monasteries are re- it's a great business, you know. And so they would find out who else was in line for it and see, just see h- how they could work, kind of like the way the po- political world works now, except maybe even a little bit more violent as far as rubbing out an opponent or uh, getting a, a huge, borrowing a huge sum of money to pay off the pope so that he will appoint you as bishop. So, obviously, those kind of things didn't promote a vibrant faith in Christianity. And this didn't happen because they were Catholics. The same thing would happen to the Presbyterians or anybody else who had that kind of situation of that much political power and control. So, we're not here to talk bad about anybody. We wouldn't have done any better, I don't think. It's it's the human condition that gets us in trouble. And uh, because of that, all during that 700-year period, The church was more and more further away from its original roots of simplicity, and that's one of the things that drove people into monasticism. They say, well, we're just going to back out of all this. The first monk was back here in 300 and a bit named Anthony. They still know where his cave was in Egypt. And there's a little chapel there. I was just looking at a picture of it, Saint Anthony. So they originally started off just by individuals going off and hiding from the world trying to get back to God. But it ended up being getting to be where was, the church realized this is kind of extreme and there are all these weirdos going off in the desert and, you know, who knows what they're doing. So they would be safer if they were clumped up together in a group and, and kind of organized. So that's what Benedict did around here. And St. Francis and a bunch of others started around the uh, 1200. But the purpose of those monasteries, monks, nuns, and all of that was... The human heart longs for reality, uh, a touch from God. And since the church had so far departed from anything other than just of the formal once a week, or even if it was every day, but uh, the mass in Latin, and a lot of pageantry, but, but just that no one had a Bible, no one read the Bible. You were, you were not allowed to read the Bible. And so they just were hungry for God. And sometimes what they, people would just do, out of desperation, would be to go to a monastery to try to, through prayers, and they they instituted these vigils. Like, not only did you pray seven times during the day, you also would get up at 2 in the morning every single night to also have your prayer vigil and all this kind of stuff. So, now in the middle of this, the church having all this power and with Islam having taken over the Holy Land, they had, for about 200 years, there was all the stuff going on with the Crusades. Now, one of the effects of the Crusades was they... A lot of the stuff that had gotten in this messy period of time gotten lost, you know, the Aristotle and a lot of the Greek writers and stuff like that. When the Crusaders go down there, uh, they come across a lot, of these, uh, stu- a lot of these documents and things from ancient Greece and, and all ancient history and stuff that the Muslims still had copies of. And so they were bringing this back to Europe, and Europe was rediscovering a lot of uh, information that had been lost during the barbarian times. And that kind of kicked off the Renaissance. And the Renaissance was a time of, of people getting more and more opening, o- open, more, more interested in learning, studying art, and stuff like that. And I really believe that, that paved the way for the Reformation. Because as people are uh, begin to question, well, but why do we believe this? And what is really right? And what, uh, what do the original documents say? And stuff like that. It set the stage for the Reformation. The first arrow is the um, Constantine declaring the Roman Empire Christian. The second arrow was what? The, the second arrow, well, the third arrow, is Charlemagne, in 800. But the second arrow there, that middle arrow, was the, was the fall of Rome. When was the Catholic Church split from Rome to Constantinople? That was right here in 1054. Uh, the split, uh, the fr- that was the first split in the Church of the Lord with the the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church dividing in two. They excommunicated each other. I mean, you the first arrow was what, The first arrow was uh, Constantine declaring the Roman Empire to be Christian. And the second arrow, a hundred years later, was the fall of Rome. <coughs> With the Orthodox Church? Yeah, could you touch on that? Well, fortunately I read about that this past week. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever heard of icons? Sure. Do you know what an icon is? You know, they had those, uh, those paintings that look like two-dimensional paintings and the kind of the halo around them, and they don't look real realistic. And a lot of times they're on triptych, you know, and you open up the triptych, there's the icon. Well, <clears throat> turns out that in, <clears throat> in the east, Constantinople over, over there, Turkey, you know, their understanding to this very day, their understanding is that they somehow enter into communion with God through the icon that, by, that there's some, there's, it's not just a, a, a remembrance, that when they go into church or into a person's home and the icons are there, they greet the icons first and do the sign of the cross or something. But for Western Christianity, it's like, that's idolatrous. That just breaks the Old Testament commandments of you shall not make any images, you shall not bow down and worship them. And so, I mean, there were political issues also, but that was, I think, one of the main theological issues. Good question. This is a sheet I did one time. I don't know how this is going to even look on here. It looks impressive. Let me tell you what it is in one minute. But this is an overview of the first four centuries. These are all the Roman Caesars up here. Down here are all 10 persecutions. And this basically, uh, this was when Constantine in 300 declared the Roman Empire Christian, and then the fall of Rome 100 years later. This is all the Middle Ages. And so this is 10 centuries from 400 to 1500, from Augustine to Luther, all the Holy Roman emperors, when all the monasteries were founded. This is when the Crusades are, the Inquisition, the Renaissance, the rise of Islam. And uh, this is the legendary King Arthur, and this is the legend of Robin Hood, Okay. (laughs) Let's see, is this one any better? Then they, they invented the computer. So, this is a timeline on the uh, Reformation. Can you see anything on there? Just the boxes. You know, see the boxes, right? You see boxes and colors? That's good. Okay. This is the 200 years leading up to the Reformation. And a lot of people think that. Can you see Martin Luther? That's what's in that yellow box up there. He's the big one. And then John Calvin right here. But a lot of people think that the Reformation just sort of sprang out of nowhere. It's like pop goes the weasel, you know, and pop goes the monk, uh, Martin Luther. But (coughs) there was a ton of stuff that happened in the 200 years leading up to uh, Martin Luther. One of the things that seemed to have made a big difference is right down uh, what what, what you got in the top here. I'll give you maybe a copy of one of these in color, maybe next week if you come back. How about that? Uh, but the top is all religious, uh, important religious individuals. In here is all European history, the kings of England, France, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire. This is the line for the, the, uh, the church with the popes and stuff. Down here is art, literature, and philosophy. This, this big box here is the Renaissance. And uh, down here below is science and discovery. You know, all the people you read about, Magellan, Copernicus, Columbus, Kepler, Galileo, and uh, William Harvey, for those medical guys, um, and, when was, and when the Black Death was. So you look, at, you look at Martin Luther, and this is 1500 all the way down here, and you realize just, just 50 years before that, the printing press was invented. Now, before that, see, the Catholic Church could isolate somebody. Well, they were isolated anyway. The, the, some of the Reformers before Martin Luther were John Wycliffe, John Huss. See, Wycliffe lived a full 120 years before Martin Luther. We mostly know the name Wycliffe just because of the Wycliffe Bible Translators, but that's, that's when he lived, was 150 years before Martin Luther. The, another, Savonarolo in Italy, another, another early reformer. And these are people that, that realize something is desperately wrong with the church and things need to change, but the church was able to rub them out and uh, they couldn't get their message out far enough, fast enough, and the church could isolate it and stop it. But with the printing press, if you had a really good message that everybody was interested in, it was going to go to all parts of the, of the empire, and it was a lot harder to, to snuff it out. One of the reasons why I did this chart was I was kind of curious to see what was the interplay between the Renaissance and the Reformation. I didn't know when I started this, was the Renaissance at the same time? Was it after? I mean, was it something that the Reformation kicked off? Or, or was it before, and maybe somehow led to it? In the Renaissance were all the names that you, you know, Chaucer, Canterbury Tales, Donatello, remember the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, <laughs> Michelangelo, Raphael. You wonder where they got those names and what the, how they hung together. Well, it's, they were Renaissance gods, Leonardo da Vinci. And... Uh, Sir Thomas More, Machiavelli—these are all the guys down there in the Renaissance—and like I said, that is one of the things I believe that prepared the way mentally for the Reformation, because people were were studying the old Greek writers, and they got got old texts of the Bible, and someone like Erasmus was tra- made a translation of the Bible out of out of Greek into the vernacular, and uh, and so Martin Luther and people like that were studying these books, and the Reformation got going with Martin Luther as as a monk. Uh, He wasn't primarily thinking in terms of, boy, the church is really in bad shape and somebody just ought to do something. Martin Luther was trying to keep his own boat from sinking. He was uh, so depressed, was so sure he was such a sinner, so sure that he had probably not a ghost of a chance to go to heaven, and so he goes to this monastery, and he does everything that they say you're supposed to do, in order to to be saved, and he can just tell it, but it's not enough because every day I keep I keep blowing it again. He went to his uh, his his kind of his boss, his uh, superior, uh, like the mother superior in Sound of Music. Well, he had a father superior or something, and and he would go and to do to tell you know do his confession and say, well, I did this and this and this, and and his confessor or, or the the priest would say, well, you need to pray this many Our Fathers and Hail Marys, and do this and that, and then I'll, I'll say it's okay. You know, God will forgive you. But he'd be coming every day, uh, Martin Luther, with about two hours of stuff. And this, and I thought this, and this and that, and the other, and it was all just, you know, the guy saying, you know, he said, please, don't come back again until you've got something really worth confessing, you know? Uh, but Martin Luther was just killing himself with fastings, with staying up all night, uh, and another thing that really affected him was, he thought, well, if I go down to Rome, I'll get extra credit. What, what was the credit system that they had? The, the, they had this, they'd come up with this doctrine of the treasury of merit, and that Jesus got so much credit by living a perfect life and being the Son of God and everything that He had, like, extra credit. You know, He had n- not only enough for Him to have life forever, but uh, he had a bunch extra. Uh, it would be like if you had some, I don't know, some free passes to the movie. And you only, you only need one to go in. But you got these other ten free passes. So these other guys said, Well, would you, could I have a free pass? And said, Well, sure. Well, take me out to lunch tomorrow, and I'll give you one of my free passes. So they had this whole system set up where since you can't possibly live up to everything you need to live up to, uh, we, we have ways, the Lord has ways to help you get extra credit to make up for where you're to pull your grade up. And one of the ways you could do that is you could go visit relics. Uh, You know, some of you who haven't heard this, you know, it kind of comes as a surprise, but you would not believe all the things that they had, that they said had to do with Jesus and the disciples. They had, at this church, they had a piece of the cross. They had, in a vile, tears of the Virgin Mary in Cologne, it, that's where all of the relics for the, for the Three Wise Men are. Today, you can go to, to Rome and visit the relics of the Three Wise Men. Their tombs, uh, maybe a tooth from one of their horses, they had all, they, a piece of the gold, uh, a little bit of the frankincense and myrrh, and you know, it's the sort of thing, and if you believe that that really was always what they said it was, then we have some property to sell you at the end of this time. But. But anyway, they had inculcated in the whole church that if you will go make a pilgrimage to this church and go and pray in front of this wise man's horse's tooth, ten Hail Marys and a couple of Our Fathers, then you get, and they have a number, you get this many credits. I mean, indulgences is what they called them. And so Martin Luther thought, and most of the relics, where were they? In Rome. That's where they had the stairs, supposedly, that they brought from Palestine, that Jesus had gone up when He was tried. And that's where they had the relic, the the bones of St. Paul, St. Peter. I mean, some of the relics are probably true. But if you would go and visit the relics and pray there, you would get, and you could add it all up. You know, man, that's that's 4,000. It's like green stamps or something, you know, for those of us that remember that. And so, He goes down to Rome, because he thought, man, I can rack out in Rome with the indulgences, with the, with the extra credit. Maybe that'll get me feeling okay about myself. And he goes down there, and, and in Rome, uh, you know, he was up in Germany where everything was a little bit more out in the boondocks and everybody's basically behaved themselves. But down in Rome, he realized how rotten at the core the church was. And, you know, you'd hear the rumors about how this guy got in place as a bishop because he paid this other guy to go poison his rival and this and that and the other. And then you'd hear how the pope had 15 illegitimate children by 15 different women and all of these kind of things. And he was scandalized, you know. I think, here I thought I was in trouble going to, uh, you know, uh, maybe in tr- um, be going to hell. And it looks like the whole church is going to hell, you know. So uh, that, he came back deeply troubled by what he saw in Rome. And so, when he got back, he was still, now, he, he went depressed about himself. He came back still depressed about himself, but also depressed about the church. And his boss thought, if we don't do something, this guy's going to kill himself. I mean, either he's going to starve himself to death, or he's going to jump off a cliff. we got to find something to distract this guy, because he was so smart. So. He, uh, he told Martin Luther, he said, Martin Luther, I want, you to, I want you to be a teacher. He says, a teacher? He says, I don't even know what I'm doing. He says, that's okay, that's okay. It'll all work out. He gets him teaching theology, and Martin Luther begins to study the book of Romans, and then the book of Galatians, or maybe it was the other way around, but those are the two books he was studying in order to teach it. And as he got into the Scripture and just soaked in the Scripture and thought, well, I wonder what that means, and, and getting beyond all the stuff he'd been taught that really wasn't from the Bible, but was just kind of barnacles that had grown on the church's ship over the years. As he studied the Scripture, bit by bit, and in fact, one day he came, he came to the place where he realized, all of a sudden, that salvation was by grace alone. It was like an atom bomb had gone off in his head. All this time, or all of his life, He thought it was by works. And this last part of his life, he'd been thinking, well, if it's by works, I better get busy. And he was. And and he did everything he could. And the the more he tried, the more he realized how far away he was from ever possibly being able to save himself by his own works. And at that moment, it was like everything opened up for him. And then as he read the rest of the scripture, he realized that's what this whole thing is about. It's that salvation is by grace through faith. Now, what was the trigger point? That was all Martin Luther. Like I said, he didn't get into the Reformation stuff to reform the church. He was trying to not go to hell. He was just trying to figure out, how do I keep my own boat afloat? Well, at this point, his boat started floating. You know, I mean, that's our hope, is that Christ Jesus died to save sinners, and that we have hope because of the grace of God that God can forgive us because of Jesus Christ. not because we, He doesn't forgive us because now we're trying really hard. He forgives us because Jesus was already perfectly obedient and died for us on the cross. So, Martin Luther now, is, his boat's floating, and what happens, but next door, uh, uh, like we're in, we're in Northeast Columbia in Pontiac, this guy shows up because they're trying to build St. Peter's in Rome. Remember that big, huge, beautiful church in Rome where the Pope waves to people, you know, and goes through in the Pope mobile, and the big dome and the big arms that come around, like holding holding the people in there, and uh, supposedly built over the tomb of uh, the apostles and everything. Well, they were in the process right here, uh, right here, of trying to build St. Peter's, and it cost a lot of money. And they think we need to make, we need to ha- re- get some new revenue, and so they thought, well. Everybody's trying to get extra credit. We'll make it easy. In fact, we have a plan now where not only can you get extra credit for yourself, but just say, your dear old dad died excommunicated. Uh, he was a drunkard, et cetera, et cetera, and you're really worried about him because he's still your dad, and you're thinking, you know. And so the, now the church, in its great benevolence, is going to work it out for a nominal fee for you to uh, buy extra credits for them, and so this guy Tetzel is right over there in Pontiac. Actually, it wasn't Pontiac, but it was you know the next next little town over because the the mayor of his town wouldn't allow it. So, uh, but more from financial reasons, didn't want you know we we got a chapter three going. We you know we we can't allow every fundraiser to come through. You know, first to take care of the local concerns, and so they had the same kind of a thing. They. Uh, so, right right in Luther's town they wouldn't allow it, but right next door, in, in like as far away as Pontiac, this guy's over there preaching, and uh, he says, I have a papal uh, a certificate here, they would call it a bull, with the, with the papal seal and everything, and if you just come and put some money in here, then uh, your loved one will be set free out of purgatory. It's a plenary indulgence. In other words, whatever they're lacking, This will cover it. Now, Tetzel would go on. Uh, did, uh, Did you see the movie, Luther? He would go on and on. He says, think about it. Your poor, dear mother. She who bounced you on her lap, she who put the Gerber's baby food in your mouth, right this minute, she's an unspeakable torment in purgatory, trying to finish getting cleaned up for heaven. And with just a little bit of money, you could send her right on to heaven. How ungrateful of you. Look at you there. Why wouldn't you know? He says, the moment the cohen in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It rhymes both in German and in English. It's real handy. So anyway, well, Luther, with what he's found out about what the gospel really is, is absolutely horrified in part because all of his parishioners have heard about this great deal, a fire sale, literally, <laughs> to get your relatives out of purgatory. So they're heading off with everything they own to be able to get their relatives out of purgatory by giving money that's eventually going to St. Saint... Actually, it wasn't going to St. Peter's. The pope had gotten a big loan and he was trying to pay off his debt. That it was even worse than that. <laughs> so anyway, Martin Luther, at that point, writes out a list of 95 objections and things that he doesn't agree with about it all and nails it to a door at the Castle Church in Wittenberg and, uh, in Latin. But that was immediately published on the printing press and sent all over the place, and, that, and the Reformation was off to a start. Now, when this got started with Martin Luther, and he got that Reformation going in his area of Germany. It began, the word got out within a year or two. Word was all over the place. Uh, the church was at such a low point that it was kind of like a powder keg waiting to go off. And so the other three big names in the Reformation were Ulrich Zwingli. Does any, has anybody heard of him? Does that sound? How many people heard of Ulrich Zwingli? Okay, about four or five. He was in Switzerland and he was uh, the Swiss reformer, John Calvin. Does anybody know what his original name was? He was born in France. His name was Jean Covin. How about that, huh? I won't charge you any extra for that. And he uh, had to get out of town in France because uh, they were... France was, has always been pretty rough on people of the Re- Re- Reformation, and so he ended up also in Switzerland. And the other big name is uh, John Knox. But anyway, so they're they're all pretty much contemporaries. John Huss was a 100 years before. He was over in Bohemia, and he was, I believe, burned at the stake, wasn't he? So that was back, again, before the printing press and before they could really get the word out. Okay, so... In this period of time, what were all of them wanting to do? They all had the same idea in mind. It was Reformation, to reform the church, to go back to the original documents, in other words, the, the Bible as, in the Old and New Testament, and say, what should Christianity look like if you just use the Bible? That's what they all wanted to do. And I, what I've realized is, I, as I read them, They were all working with a presupposition, maybe two presuppositions. One presupposition was, if everybody sincerely looks at the same Bible, they'll come to the same conclusion on everything. And that didn't end up working out that way. That's why we have lots of denominations. But they had no way of knowing that. I mean, no one had ever uh, gotten a big group of people together to look at the Bible. So their original assumption was, if you're sincere and you read the Bible, you'll come to the same conclusions I came to. And if you didn't, you just have a hard heart. Because, uh, no, I mean, I'm, I know I'm sincere. And so, if you didn't come up with what I came up with, you must not be sincere. Now, I want to talk to you the last little bit we got remaining, is uh, what are the two main things that drove the Reformers? What were they looking for more than anything else in what they were doing, particularly with the, what we call the Reformed tradition? Uh, what are the headwaters of the Reformed faith? Now, what had driven the Catholic Church was to have an unbroken link, an uh, apostolic link, uh, be able to trace the trail all the way back to the Apostle Peter and, well, all the Apostles. And, so the, and they also had the uh, they'd exalted tradition so that if any Pope had said it and as, as, as Pope, then that was also on equal footing as the Word of God. Mm. So tradition was really high up there. But now, the Reformed faith, they say what we, tradition has to be subordinate to the Word of God. In fact, we're, tradition isn't in any way authoritative. The only thing that's authoritative is God's Word. And so when you, whenever you read Reformed theology, more than, more than any of the others, more than... Anglicanism, Lutheranism, even Methodism, and, and a lot of the other branches. But if you just talk reformed, the Reformed faith, that's not just Presbyterians, they're also Reformed Baptists, they're different. Reformed groups. When you use the word reformed, there are two main things that drove their search for to understand the Christian faith. And it's these two things the the glory of God and the word of God. These are the headwaters. This is what they put first. They say, more than anything else, uh, we want our theology to be a theology. We start with God. It's the study of God. And we start with God, and then we figure everything else out. He's, he's the center. You know, some, some of you decorator types, you know. If you, you've got a living room, and when you buy one big piece, that is going to be a determinative piece. And what do I know about? I don't know nothing about decorating, but just supposedly, you know, you get this big. We, At one point, we had a, when we first got to Argentina, we got this nice, big, long, curvy couch, you know. Well, I mean, that... you just can't put that anywhere, you know. And, uh, and your biggest decision in figuring out what you're going to do in the living room is, well, where's the curvy couch going to go? And so the, uh, they had, in, in their approach to understanding uh, the Christian faith, They said, let's start with God. Let's not start with the church. We're not starting with the individual. Uh, Who am I, and how do I feel, and what do I want for breakfast today? We're going to start with God. Who is He? What has He revealed about Himself? And we have learned from God that that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we're going to put the glory of God first, and uh, equally, in order to do that, the other headwater, or what, where everything flows out of from, in Reformed theology, is the Word of God. What does the Bible say? Yeah, but I sort of feel this way, or I kind of like, what, no, what does the Bible say? Well, my dad always said, what does the Bible say? Well, the President said, no, what does the Bible say? And so, more than, as, as much or more than any other branch of Christianity, when you talk about Reformed faith. Sometimes you can think, well, maybe that's just sort of a weird thing of, you know, I always picture Presbyterians like castles, you know, uh, the old churches look like a castle turret and all this kind of stuff, and they use these big stones, and you think, well, maybe it's just kind of a a weird Scottish brand of Christianity or something like that. But the essence of the Reformed faith, now you may disagree that maybe you don't agree with all they came up with, but you need to know that this is why, what, what was driving them, what was motivating them. Now there, you know, everybody's imperfect in their ability to understand the Scriptures, but and, and knowing this, that their intent wasn't to make something Scottish or English or traditional, or, uh, but it was to pursue an understanding of the Christian life that put God in first place and glorified Him, and represented as closely as possible, what does the Bible say? So next week we're going to get into, well, what conclusions did they come to? But at least you know what their starting point is. I told you tonight how, they got, how it got started historically, and then as they got started, what were the main things that they were thinking? More than anything else, we've got to hold on to these two things. That's the history and the headwaters of the Reformed faith. And next week we want to look at, as they studied their Bible, those, those first 30 years, what did they discover? about God, about man, about how one is saved, about the way you organize the church, and just like we looked at 15 centuries in 15 minutes, well, we'll look at uh, 30 years of their discoveries in a couple of charts next week. We can't cover it all and explain it all, but you'll at least have the overview, and for some maybe that's enough. (laughs) Okay? Well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, a lot's gone on before us and some very fine men have put their life at risk to get back to the Bible and to study, to find the old ancient paths of knowing God, of drawing near to God, of how to have eternal life, of who is Jesus Christ and what was God's purpose in Him, and what is Your will for us uh, individually and as a church these days. Lord, teach us new things and thrill our hearts again with old, ancient truths that set us free and put a spring in our steps in jesus name amen. thanks for joining us on bringing truth to life if you like our content please subscribe and give us a review this helps more people find our podcast